I mean, originally I was actually planning to talk about the uh, ten non-virtues as a way to cultivate the virtues, but just when stuff happened in Israel and kind of in combination with what's been happening in Ukraine, it just seemed like a time to talk about love and to talk about how we might meet that in a way. So I want to say, um, you know, because we'll have discussion afterwards and just want to say kind of up front, this is not a political discussion. So I'd really ask you to, whatever your political leanings are, just kind of do that elsewhere. But let's just really look at the Dharma aspects, you know, and don't make any assumptions about where people are coming from either politically or anythingly. You know, we just don't know in the circle in that online. So no assumptions and let's just hear each other and see how we can kind of go deeper in terms of how to, how to live with. Steve, Steve, can you um, turn the camera back to you? I can do that. Thank you. What a team. All right. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, extra double, triple thanks to my wife who doesn't like to drive at night and drove over here in 25 minutes flat and got the gear here in time to actually start up at 7 o'clock. So big heart to her. Thank you, Ellen. Ellen is my wife. So, Steve, while you're doing that, I'll actually share something. Please. And, um, do you want to do this? To, what? Want to do the... Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll reluctantly do that. Okay, you're the man. <laughs> so, um, I've been traveling, which is why I've been here for about six weeks, and people... I don't really expect people to remember what I sort of talked about last time, but in some ways this has continuity to it. And I've started reading um, the Connected Discourses. Um, and just really from the beginning, and I don't know whether I'll get very far because there's actually a lot of redundant stuff. But one of, the very first one was the one that, and it's a very short one, and the early parts of the Connected Discourses are where these divas, these, you know, godlike, fairy-like characters come and query, honor Buddha, and it's a lot of it is in verse. And so this is just where one of these, you know, um, illuminous beings comes and talks to him and says to him, how, dear sir, did you cross the flood, which I assume is sort of a flood of samsara. Uh, by not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. By how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and by not straining, straining, you crossed the flood. When I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. And when I struggled, then I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. And it was I, it was just sort of an interesting contrast of just sort of being persistent. But on the other hand, not persistent so much so that you're straining. It just sort of um, caught me. And I sort of shared it as a little bit. Yeah, that's great. Of Thank Dharma. you. That's right. We just gotta give you a chance to find your Thank you. You're the man. So you wouldn't be straining at it, well. <laughs> So you know, it's when, as many of you know, on the journey of spiritual life, it's often when things are really hard that we break through on many levels, and we're stretched. You know, if it's just all easy and serene, and we're in Costa Rica and there's palm trees and it's all it's easy, but when it's hard, then we really come up against parts of ourselves that need to step up. And from the Dharma point of view, the interlacing 
of the conventional understanding of reality and the ultimate understanding of reality are part of how we can navigate through hard times. And, you know, here we are, the circle of Dharma practitioners, and there's some really difficult things going on right now. Israel and Palestinians and Israel, the Israelis, difficulty there. Ukraine and Russia hasn't gone away. And at times, you know, it's partly because we're all digitally connected. The world just seems impossibly divided. And so I, I think that what the Buddha taught and the way he taught the ultimate nature of things or seeing through clinging or seeing through identification gives us some tools to navigate through this and also the way that the freedom of seeing through identification and how that co-emerges with loving kindness is pretty amazing. So that helps us navigate this time. And here we are, 2023. We've got the Israelis and Palestinians, the Ukrainians and Russia, Russians, but also in Yemen is Sudan, Eritrea, the Congo, Haiti, and Myanmar. There are conflicts or near conflicts or just all kinds of difficulties that we might not identify with so much, some of us, you know, because those of us who are of European origin, might that, that might feel farther away. Other people, it may feel exactly the opposite, you know, even in this room or online in this room, digital room. So this is, this is our world. You know, and how, how, how do we navigate and how can we help? And how can we feel the heart of the, the compassion, the empathy to show up and not just kind of be dancing around doing frivolous stuff without awareness? We can have fun, but be aware. And maybe for some of us, there's action we can take, but we can do it from love. So how we dance through all that? I want to just offer offer some stuff from my own sense of things and from my own, you know, teachings and what I've heard and what I've done and see if it's helpful. And so it's our tendency here in this world that when there's war, there's political tension to slip over the boundary into adjust, uh, you know, judging others, wishing for the others to go away, wishing for pain for the others or even extermination. We do that, right? We all do that. I'm, I do that sometimes. I'm sure all of us do that. And, but that's not how wars are won. That's not how peace comes to have that kind of enmity toward another being. And the Buddha, he was uncompromising about turning toward love. In Dhammapada, I do tend for those, I do tend to quote the suttas a lot and stuff. And in Dhammapada 5, he said, you cannot stop hatred by hatred, but only by lack of hatred or sometimes that's translated only by love alone. I mean, right there, you know, that's it, that's it. We can just fold up and go home. You can't stop hatred by hatred, but only by love. There's this amazing, in the Majjhima Nikaya 21, the simile of the saw. There's this place where he sets the bar incredibly high about how to turn toward someone who was causing pain. For you, and I've read some of you. I've read this before because I've, it's 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 so amazing. He says, mendicants, even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handled saw, two-handled saw, one who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be carrying out my teachings. Here in bhikkhus, you should train thus: our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall utter no evil words. 
we shall abide compassionate for their welfare, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them, with a mind imbued with loving kindness, and starting with them, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world, with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train mendicants. That's kind of where he lets you off the hook a little bit because he says that's how you should train, not necessarily that's how you should be because to be have someone cutting you up with a two-handled saw and to radiate loving kindness towards them would be hard, but but one could. And so you might think this isn't some sort of, you know, hyperbole, but he actually did live like this in repeated situations. I want to share two from his life that have always really struck me. And and we can also see how his non-violent, non-hating responses were a natural result of the fact that he had awakened to the realities of not-self and impermanence and dukkha. And also we can look at what this means to us, you know, as far as we can see, as far as we are on the path, how that can condition how we navigate these times of polarity, how it can help us turn toward compassion and loving kindness when our instinct might be quite the opposite. So what's if you, if you when you read the suttas, you start to see, because the suttas are a whole bunch of stories, and in a lot of cases there's someone attacking him, undermining him, questioning him, all kinds of stuff. He never comes back with animosity or trying to defeat them. He might try to explain why they're wrong or you know misinformed or that kind of, but he's never trying to crush them. It's not hatred ever. It's amazing. When you really start to feel what's going on on multi-levels. And he never... He never viewed, and I think this is key to how we navigate the world, because he never viewed an antagonist as an enemy, but instead as a being who could awaken. It's always, this person, this being could awaken. What am I going to do to help that happen? He just sees that potential, and it's always framed that way. So think about these two stories in the context of 2023 and how we might respond or how we're feeling to whoever's doing something that we don't like, which could also, you know, apply to Congress. <laughs> it could apply to a lot of places right now, you know, in the United States, all kinds of stuff without getting political. So <laughs> so first there's a case of Angulimala, who I know we've talked about this before. Some of you may or may not remember or be here. Angulimala, the name means basically a mala, necklace of fingers. And he had a necklace of fingers because he had killed 999 persons and had a finger from each one hanging around his neck and it's a lovely mala of 999 fingers. Angulimala, first history's first serial killer, perhaps. Huh? First recorded. There you go. I know. I thought of that after I said that. Yes, thank you. First recorded within Buddha Dharma. There may be some serial killer in some other tradition. I don't know about. Okay. First Buddhist recorded serial killer. Well, he wasn't Buddhist in the beginning, but what was so amazing, and you read the story, like the Buddha didn't try to go in the other direction, which would be like perfectly normal and understandable, but instead he went toward Angulimala, carrying nothing but his alms bowl. 
And it's interesting that he carried his alms bowl even though he wasn't going for alms. I'm always struck by that. I'm like, that's interesting. Why'd you do that? You know, it was sort of a symbol of who he was. All I have is this. And everybody's trying to get him to not go in the jungle. No, dude, dude, don't. You're going to get killed. Don't go in the jungle. He said, no, I'm, he just went. He just went. And he didn't, he didn't see an inherently evil murderer, horrible person when he came to Angulimala. He saw this being who had the pen, potential to awaken. And as it turned out, it wasn't so far beneath the surface, this potential to awaken. So, while the sutta doesn't actually say this, but from other suttas, likely, the Buddha saw Angulimala's chain of lifetimes and the factors and conditions that had brought him to do what he was doing now and the possibility of freedom that was not that far away. He probably saw all this, which is why he even went into the jungle in the first place, because he tended to go toward where there was the possibility of changing a life. And there's this cool thing where, who knows how to handle it, but Angulimala is this huge, powerful person with swords, and, and he's chasing the Buddha, but he can't catch him. Like, he's running as fast as he can, the Buddha's just walking along, and he can't catch him. Whatever, make, make of that what you will. But he says, stop to the Buddha. And the Buddha says, no, you stop. And he got it. He just got it right there. What he needed to do was stop this behavior that was hurting everybody and himself. And he, as some of you know, he takes off his swords, he becomes a mendicant, he becomes a bhikkhu, and he awakens in that very lifetime. So that's crazy. 999 people you killed and you awaken in that lifetime, right? The Buddha saw this potential. I mean, and if any of us, if there was someone running around Redmond who had killed 999 people, we would say, oh, evil, right? Just bad. But Buddha saw something else. So we can think that about anybody in the world that we've really got a problem with, any kind of leader. How interesting. Who knows? You know? Can we turn with that possibility? And Angulimala became a monk. He tolerated stoning from villagers who realized who he'd been. Buddha said, well, be patient. That's your karma coming back, my friend. Uh, and there's even a, there's a stupa in India dedicated to him because he was such an awakened being. So, you know, think about the politician you most like to hate, who seems completely reprehensible and evil to you, whatever. Did that person actually kill 999 people personally? You know, you could say, oh, maybe that was, Angulimala was worse than that person that we really think is horrendous. And then you can start to, you know, it's always worth stretching to say, to consider someone that you've, we've, we've concretized as an evil person perpetrating some horrible thing in the world, but wonder what was going on underneath. What were the causes and conditions? Why are they doing what they're doing? You know, it really gets interesting to try to read some of these, some of these uh, lifetimes. And if, because of what the Buddha taught about dependent arising and about the nature of our inherent sense of self, all the factors that make up who we think we are come from other causes and conditions or a stream of causes and conditions. So the, the way in which we learn there's no inherent self there helps us see the possibility of anybody also being fundamentally different at some point from what we think they now are. 
Martin Luther King was a master of returning love for hatred in our very time, early 20th, mid, late 20th century. He was, you know, heckled, spat on, arrested, beaten, and then killed. But he never stopped cultivating loving kindness. And there's, I've read this before, so forgive me if you've heard it, but it's a 1957 sermon, I think. He, he cited the words of Jesus, you know, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that use you. And then he brought it to the present. He said, let me hasten to say that Jesus was very serious when he gave this command. He wasn't playing. He realized that it's hard to love your enemies. He realized that it's difficult to love those persons who seek to defeat you those persons who say evil things about you. He realized that it was painfully hard, pressingly hard, but he wasn't playing. And we cannot dismiss this passage as just another example of oriental hyperbole, just a sort of exaggeration to get over the point. This is a basic philosophy of all that we hear coming from the lips of our master. So so beautiful and so interesting that he uses the word master, almost like Jesus is a spiritual teacher. That's really Interesting. Okay, leave that there. The second story that I wanted to share that relates to this is you know, it's, you ever try to you read something over and over, you've never tried to say it, and you go, I don't know how to say this. Ajasatu. Ajata Satu. Best I can do right now. But he had this ultimate understanding of the potential for awakening in King Ajasatu, who had deposed his dad, King Bimbisara, starved him to death in a prison, and then became king after he had killed his dad, basically. And this is complicated for the Buddha because Bimbisara was the, the king who first realized the potential of the Buddha before he even awakened and was one of his primary sponsors through his entire life. This all happened in the area around Vulture Peak, which is kind of northeast of Bogaya. So there's Vulture Peak where the Heart Sutra happened. You may have read about the bamboo grove and the mango grove. Those were both, the bamboo grove was given by King Bimbisara. The mango grove was given by King Bimbisara's physician. And they're both within a handful of kilometers from Vulture Peak, as is the prison where Bimbisara starved to death because his father wouldn't feed him, like in earshot, probably, of where the Buddha was. So it's really, you know, pretty personal for the Buddha. This is his buddy. <laughs> and I, I often wondered, like, what was that like? What Did they talk? Did he go out and talk in the window? I don't know. I have no idea. It doesn't talk about that in the sutta. But it's pretty powerful. But King, it's, it, this is one of the most amazing suttas, I can't, uh, it's, it's, uh, number two, the long discourses. Because it starts off where the king was having trouble sleeping and he asked all his ministers, who can I talk to? I'm kind of like, I can't seem to rest. I'm sort of up tight. And they say, well, how about this guy? How about that guy? And he said, no, no, no. And then finally about the fifth minister says, well, how about this Buddha over there? You could talk to him. And he goes, oh, that's a good idea. So he goes and talks to the Buddha. It sort of doesn't make any sense because he grew up around his father, being with the Buddha, and he acts like he doesn't know him. I don't get that part. But nonetheless, so he goes to talk to the Buddha. Buddha knows what's happening. And he gets there, and the Buddha, as it says, the Buddha is surrounded by 1,250 silent monks 
There was so much presence. It said it was silence like a clear lake. And King Basara saw this incredible silence, and he was freaked out. He said, wait a minute, is this, am I being set up? Is someone going to kill me and depose me? He said, no, no, it's cool. It's cool. So he had all this fear. But the Buddha, he ends up going face to face, and the Buddha saw the potential, and he didn't say a word about what he'd done or anything. He just gives them. It's, it's really an amazing sutta. He gives them, he does it in this question and answer thing. He asks questions and then kind of keeps pulling them into how you could live the path. It's one of the most extraordinary suttas. It's really worth reading very long because it's so long discourses. But he was teasing them into his direction of awakening, even though he was the guy who had killed one of his best friends in cold blood. And he, 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 he leads them forward into ethics and then concentration and then mindfulness and kind of opens up his possibility for awakening. And towards the end, in the middle of all this, something like the king kind of goes, oh, something wakes up in his head. And he says, he suddenly, he, he, he recognizes the source of his angst, which was the fact that he killed his father. And he asks for forgiveness. First time it's mentioned in the entire sutta, he asks the Buddha for forgiveness. He says, transgression overcame me, Lord, foolish, erring, and wicked as I was, in that I, for the sake of the throne, deprived my father, that good man and just king of his life. May the blessed Lord accept my confession of my evil deed, that I may restrain myself in the future. And the Buddha accepted this. And he said, indeed, sire, Transgression overcame you when you deprived your father, that good man and just king of his life. But since you have acknowledged the transgression and confessed it as a right, we will accept it. For he who acknowledges his transgression as such and confesses it for betterment in the future will grow in the Aryan discipline. I'm not sure what that word is, but nonetheless, will grow. So he accepts it. And there's this moment of mindfulness, you know, this moment of seeing, being able to name the thing that he'd done. And then the king, that there was always, this thing happens over and over in these kind of exchanges with the king. After all this incredible, the guy says, oh, you know what? I got a lot of appointments. I got to go. And some form of that is pretty funny. That happens about 10 times in the suttas where some king will say, oh, I got to go. And, and the Buddha afterwards, he said to the monks, if the king had not deprived his father, that good man and just king of his life, then as he sat here, the pure and spotless Dharma eye would have arisen in him. He had that potential to awaken right there in that discussion they had, but because of what he'd done, didn't happen then. So these are, you know, two cases where the Buddha, he just turned toward the infinite possibility in these two individuals, both of whom did heinous actions. And we can kind of take that into how we think about what folks are doing out there. Because have you ever noticed that when there's, especially in the political world out there, two groups opposing each other, both of them is saying the other one's evil, and they're often saying the other one's inhuman. I mean, they actually use those words. It's crazy. It's been happening in Israel and Palestine. I've read stuff on both sides where they're saying that about the other one. So, okay, so they're missing this seeing, and that's what maybe we can cultivate that would be helpful in terms of how we navigate all the mayhem of 2023. You know, it's our propensity to concretize other as inf- evil or inferior. It just plays out the growth. It plays out in politics. 
I mean, it's, and I think, you know, because of the, the fact that we're all connected, it, I think it's almost like we're in a big echoey sphere in a way that when people were much more separated, wasn't the case. And now we're just completely in each other's faces. So it, it gets blown up. So we got to work at it. That's where practice helps, you know, to really see how we're concretizing. Certainly see it, you know, it's happening in our own country, as we know, the political parties, with all the stuff. Yep, all that stuff. So this takes us to this intersection of not-self and loving-kindness in particular. You know, one of the three characteristics comes out of our insight practice. There's no inherent self. As I was saying earlier, as a bunch of factors, we put them together with the five aggregates, make a self moment by moment, solidify it, attach to it, defend it, all that stuff. doesn't actually ultimately exist. Conventionally, okay. I'm Steve. Ultimately, nobody home. So there's no inherently evil person. Every being can awaken. Buddha just talked about that. With two people who, by all normal ways of judging things, guy kills his dad. Right? Guy kills 900 people. They would be pretty easy to say, oh, they're evil. But, nope. According to the suttas, in a later lifetime, after some time in the hell realm, Angulimala did awaken. And even in his lifetime, he sponsored the first, after the Buddha died, there was this first great gathering of all the monastics, and he sponsored that and organized it and made it happen. So even in his lifetime, he manifested something really positive that kept the Dharma going. So, you know, take the black and white out of it. So it's all about, you know, it's all about choices, and it's all about how we understand, how we, how we keep letting go of the unwholesome, come back next time, and cultivate wholesome, and how we don't get stuck. And sometimes, I don't know how many people have done long retreat, but there's kind of a, how many people have done long retreat, like a week or more? Yeah, a week or so? Yeah, okay. There's this sort of joke that comes up a lot. It's like, oh, if that teacher was telepathic and saw what was going on in my mind, they probably would have thrown me out because <laughs> of all this weird stuff I was thinking and memories, you know? So we have all this stuff in us, but to have it fly around and not act on it, that's part of the deal. That's part of how we can, or, or, or we might have thought things about other people who hurt us or we think hurt us, but to just be able to be mindful of it and start to see through it. That's how this works. And, and that's what, uh, you know, that's how insight practice works. We keep running into our roadblocks and slowly, slowly, over time, they start to untangle. And we see intrinsically, ultimately, they're not there in the way we originally thought they were. There's causes and conditions, there's reasons, it's not, and ultimately us. Freedom happens in the middle of it, in a very authentic, showing up kind of way. And even in this war-torn world, I mean, what, you know, like Hitler, he was actually very kind to his secretary. There's a very funny movie, an amazing movie called Hitler's Secretary. She came out of the closet, so to speak, at the very end of her life and talked about her experience of being Hitler's secretary. He's one of the best bosses ever. He was a very kind boss to her. He really treated her well. He was a vegetarian. He really loved his dogs. Right? So it's compartmentalized, the other stuff he did. And Stalin was very kind to his mother, who hoped that he would be a priest. <laughs> and they had a very complex relationship, but they had a very deep relationship, Stalin and his mom. 
So, you know, all these people, we could think, oh, that horrendous evil person. Well, okay, it's complicated. They made choices. And usually behind most abhorrent behavior, there's fear and there's trauma, not inherent evil. You look at, you know, you know, often dictators get really, they, they put themselves into a box and then once they've gotten to a certain point, they know they don't have much wiggle room. They're probably going to end up, you know, like Mussolini hanging or something. So the, there's a lot of fear when autocrats are really crushing the people. It's so interesting. I feel compassion in a weird sort of way. So the Metta Sutta, you're probably aware of the Metta Sutta. This is where the Buddha taught loving kindness. Samyutta Nikaya 1.8, where this is a different expression or different kind of aspect of who who should be loved. Because in the Metta Sutta, he said we should love all beings. He says, I'm going to read this one section of it. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. So isn't that amazing? Like it's completely uncompromising and completely passionate. That's like really worth kind of just looking at. You look like the, the metaphor of a mother, a mother's love, love for her only child. Like that's how we should be with the most despicable person we ever met. And you know how a mother is. A child messes up, does bad things, eats the entire pie, whatever. She, she wants the child to thrive. She wants them to be lifted up. It's just how mothers are, you know, good mothers, but that's how a mother is. And she sees the gem of possibility in her child. She wants her child to be what her child can be, to be happy. She wants her child to be happy, you know. So can we be that way toward whoever our problem person is or, you know, in the global context, whoever our least favorite political leaders are who are doing stuff we think is really bad, who are, you know, arguably doing stuff that's really bad, but still, can we do that? I love this ultimate spacious. He says, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. That's a high bar, right? Radiating kindness over the entire world that includes everybody. That doesn't, nobody's ex- excluded. But that's worth doing. And just the last thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, within our lifetimes, there's some great beings who have behaved similarly, and many of those were also great beings who changed the world. Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, 
These are all beings who were persecuted in all kinds of ways, very heavily, and who did not hate the other to an incredible degree. They they didn't hate the other. They responded with love, and they also responded with firmness, and they got stuff done just because they weren't responding with hatred. That's what gave them the freedom and power to be heard and to make a difference. If they'd been responding with hatred, it just would have blown up. But they didn't. They kept loving back. It's pretty amazing. Those beings, they're incredible. Nelson Mandela, you know, read Martin Luther King, read his book about when he was in, in, in prison. It's quite amazing. Mahatma Gandhi, Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh. So this doesn't mean, all this doesn't mean we kind of roll over and love beings without taking action. This act of loving can include positive action, opposing actions of beings who are hating. But we can also, we need to cultivate loving kindness toward them also. Both things at the same time, which isn't easy. But the, when you start to kind of look into, that's why this, the whole teachings about not-self are so important because you look at what happens, people completely concretize the other as an evil person. I've heard that over and over again from our, you know, people in power have said that just recently. And, but it's not true. Ultimately, it's not true. Conventionally, you can say they're, you know, their actions were evil. Okay, maybe. Or their actions were very ill or hateful. Okay. Their actions, fine. They ultimately are not that. So. Almost, almost over, but, you know, it's just time, I think. This is a time to keep cultivating love and kindness, keep radiating it throughout the world as best you can. You know, it's a practice. doesn't mean it's going to be easy. doesn't mean you're going to feel that so much, much of the time. But the other option, not even trying, that's, that doesn't get you anywhere. It just turns you into an oppositional person trying to win and defeat the others. So the Dharma is way bigger than that, because remember those two stories, the most reprehensible person you got in your heart mind right now can awaken and become a Buddha too. So let's sit for a moment.